Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Are you ready to warm up? Flutists Amanda Blakey and Laura Lentz have some great gifts in store for you. And we're the first podcast to have the preview. Laura Lentz asks, do you want to discover color and emotion in your playing? Is something missing in your practicing? She and I will discuss her book, Modal Flute Warm-Up, Sound Discovery and Tone Expansion. And then we'll look at five daily exercises from Amanda Blakey, as well as her Rubank virtual duets, and we'll get a sneak peek into a new project coming out soon with Amanda. In the podcast with me, co-producers Alan J. Tomasetti and Jordan Smith. I hope you find something new in the podcast. Stay tuned and welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Laura Lenz, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. I'm so excited to talk about Samuel Barron and little words like noodles and airbursts and uncertain things like that like there were so many sam baronisms there was an article called sam baronisms there's so many samuel baron inspirations and i'm so happy to host you today on porter flute pod because over here we love etudes we love scales we love warm-ups and we're always looking for new things and you introduced yourself and said hey i wrote this book you need to check it out. So we're checking it out. Tell us about it. Absolutely, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. And you mentioned Sam Barron. Sam Barron uh, was the inspiration for this whole book. Now, I didn't study with him. I know you did. I didn't study with him, but I went to a flute fair here in Rochester, New York, where I'm based. And um, in one of the workshops that I attended, there was a warm-up attributed to Sam Barron called I don't know if this is actually a name that you know of or an exercise you know of, but each motif, one fast puff of air. And it's this lovely five-note scale-based exercise. And it completely caught me, uh, kind of caught my attention. Um, I began using it in my warm-up routine, and I realized... I really felt that it provided me important feedback about my sound and my fingers and my embouchure and my breathing. And the most important thing, the most important thing for, for me with this exercise was it provided space for me to reflect on these things because da 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 then there's a moment. da 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 And then what I did was I expanded it to go to the upper part of the scale. da 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 And then you go on to the next uh, so, for example, that would start on C, and then the next pattern would start on D. And it's such a simple little exercise. But I found it motivating me uh, in my practice. I felt like the modal nature of it really drew, drew me in. And I started uh, improvising little melodies, little modal melodies, and I started composing little melodies. And then this warm-up book kind of came to life. And that was your why? That was my why. Yeah. What a great inspiration. Before we go into modes, I want to talk about how to warm up technically. Samuel Barron hit home the need for scales and intervals, but then these, this word noodles would come out. And that's really what you're offering us. Noodles are patterns. And if we don't practice patterns, we're not getting enough of a technical challenge. How do you feel? Yes. I mean, I think that the fact that this is a, you know, there's a lot of technical exercises in this book. Um, I do feel that these kind of scalar patterns can provide us with a lot of great information 
one of the things that I want to focus on a lot in the book is the idea of discovery. And what happened when I discovered this exercise was I felt I was invited by this exercise to discover more about my playing. And so when we you know, can play a scale, when we play a scale exercise, we're really given an opportunity to think about so much of our playing. And when we're practicing with discovery, when we use materials that invite this sense of discovery, we can take an active role as learners. We can uh, ask questions. We can seek out solutions to problems. And so what I my big goal, I mean, the name of the book is Modal Flu Warm-Up. The subtitle of the book is Sound Discovery and Color Palette Expansion. So for me, everything we're doing about uh, in our flute playing is sound discovery. And then the modes give us an opportunity to expand that color palette. But yes, I completely agree with what you're saying about scale patterns and intervals, that they provide us with so many opportunities to discover more about our playing. And they, they're an important part of, I think, regular, regular work that we do. So what you've given us is a doorway into other types of music, but also you said there's there's it's almost three pronged. Uh, the other door leads to improv, and the other door leads to extreme discipline. So I know for me, when I discovered modes, not only could I not pronounce the names, but I realized that they were. Um, similar to the scales, but I needed to open instead of be rigid in my head. And in, in, in my head, my key signatures were my rigidity. In the modes, it was like this, you're right, this expansive place. It was wild. I love the cover of your book because it's got this person with a flute on this mountain. You know, you could do anything up there. No one's listening. Everyone's listening. It's your soul expanding. <laughs> and modes do that for us. So you've taken modes. Let's now talk about modes. I, I pull them out of the Wali Kujala Vade Mecham book, and I put them out and I say to my students, here's how you say this. You say, Phrygian mode starting on C and you have to announce each one. And they look at me, each one. Yes, you must announce each one. And they'll say, they'll say it over to Aeolian mode on C sharp and go, you know, yes. One sounds like a major scale. Yes. One sounds like a natural minor. If you have to go into rigidity to remember your modes, that's fine. That's what I had to do. Because the modes are so expansive. They they just are this doorway, right? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. And it's so fabulous that you invite your students to explore these wonderful colors and patterns. They're different fingering combinations. They're, I think they're different colors, new emotions, new fingering combinations. They also let us explore the, you know, this unusual kind of outside the box of tonal harm harmony, we can explore for ourselves then this kind of um, tension and release in a phrase that's not dictated by tonal harmony. And so the modal, you mentioned the modal noodles, I wrote those because I was really curious about playing some melodies where I could explore all those things together. Um, and in the modal noodles that I've written out, which is in the fifth part of the book, um, you have a melody and then you can stay in the color of, let's say, like Lydian. And I gave them the names you mentioned, uncertain. Um, I gave the names of the the, the modal noodles, uh, you know, things that can spark the imagination. And so you travel through all the transpositions staying in, let's say, a Lydian color. And then at the end, you're invited to improv. Now, I grew up, I'm classically trained. I have a master's in flute performance. I've been an orchestral player, chamber player. I've done it all. 
but I grew up in a jazz household. My dad is actually a jazz musician um, and he played with Woody Herman and Jimmy Dorsey and marvelous musician. And so I grew up playing the blues with him and all the modes were a part of my childhood. So, you know, even though I studied music and I was exposed to modes in that way, really modes I think are scary to a lot of classical players. I think they're they're not something we're comfortable with. We play them in the Kujala, we play them in the, you know, Patricia George's book or wherever we can find them, but we don't actually really want to go much beyond that. We don't really use them because it's kind of scary. And so what I wanted to do, I mean, out of my own curiosity, because of my background and also I'm always curious and we all are curious, but I was really kind of getting bored with my own warm up, and I felt like I wanted to have something that just sparked my curiosity a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, this, the exploring all the modes personally for me was invigorating and opened up doors for me. I like that you said it opened a doorway. And I think that for a lot of classical players, it's a first taste, maybe first experience um, of modes beyond what they did with their teachers, maybe who are wonderful like you exposing the students to modes or what they did in theory or maybe in a jazz improv class. But beyond that, I think we haven't had a lot of opportunities to to use and work. Um, you know, we have pieces like the sweet modal, you know, but really, I mean, we, I think we are limited in our exposure uh, to to modal exercises and opportunities to use them. We're talking with Laura Lentz about modal flute warm-up, and it's published by our dear friends Colleen Conway and Tom Hodgman um, at Conway Publications. And let's just go through the book for a moment, because you don't just start playing. <laughs> you have body awareness, which is everything I stand for. So go. Yes. Well, you know, the, so the first, the first chapter of the book is called Start to Discover. And there's nine aspects of um, our flute playing that I think are important to explore and discover, you know, body awareness, um, breathing, tone, technique, articulation, uh, practicing, expressive elements, um, even thinking about your flute. Is it, is it working? Do you need a new flute? Um, all of these things I, I pose, I offer some ideas to think about also in my own teaching, my own playing, my own experiences. And then I invite readers to explore, reflect, and to discover different things about their own playing in each of these aspects. Um, you know, lots of questions may remain questions and that's okay. You know, love the questions as Rilke says. And so um, that first chapter is meant to, as it says, start to discover. There's no, don't have to arrive to any place. It's a journey. And then the second chapter is this six part modal warm up, And um, it starts with modal, part one is modal airy sounds. And there's two exercises, one breathy tones in Locrian and windy tones in Lydian. Part two is modal harmonics. There's three exercises, moving through modes, freely Phrygian, and dreaming in Aeolian. A full warm-up is really important. And I used to play, and I still do occasionally, but I used to play a lot of long tones to start. That was, you know, kind of what I had in my mind, the traditional long tones. Yeah, me too. And over time, <clears throat> over time, I um yeah, did my did my time. <laughs> over yeah. time, I felt like it wasn't serving me. And it wasn't actually also serving my students, I think, in the best way. I think when we can begin by checking in with ourselves, with our body, our mind, when we can explore airy sounds, as I like to call them, which are, you know, wind tones, breath kicks, harmonics, these kinds of first experiences that move the air and activate the lips, and then moving the fingers with scalar patterns, um, such as part three and part four, which are the Sam Barron exercises, um, the modal root patterns is kind of fun because it organizes the the exercises 
in a way where you're adding a flat. And so you're always noticing the color change, which is really enjoyable. And then part five is the modal noodles. And then part six is modal melodic patterns, which finishes with these expressive melodic tonal. Because I love finishing with exploring the tone, thinking about sonority, because I'm finally warmed up. I'm not ready to think about my the quality of my sound in as the first thing that I do in my warm up. I don't think that that's I don't think that's joyful and it doesn't for me at least set up I'm not ready. But when I've finished the the warm up in in this case I feel like when I arrive to my part 6 to my melodic patterns I'm in a joyful happy place and I've done different kinds of exercises that help me to move my air, think about my fingers, my mind, my body, my... So I'm in a good place to explore my sound at that point. I wish I had had this book (laughs) when I was was younger. So I tell the story of before the creation of Trail of Tears and working with Michael Dougherty. He said, hey, let's jam. And I found myself curling up with my knees up against my body, with my flute in a chair, like saying, how do I do this? I was curled up in a ball in a chair. And had I known modes, it would have, golly, sorry I keep saying open doors, but the modes would have opened doors for me to not feel so paralyzed in fear that I had to (gasps) improvise. Yeah, completely. And I think, I mean, we're not given enough opportunities, I think, to improvise as classical players. There's this, you know, divide. It's either you're a classical player or a jazz player. And that's ridiculous. I mean, if you think about, you know, composer, um, composers like Bach and Mozart, you know, their music was, you were supposed to improvise the cadenzas, you were supposed, the pianist was supposed to improvise the right hand, you know. And so, um, as I say in my preface, improvising, there's no wrong answers. There's, you know, especially, and I think this is really, really important. I want to hit home on this. Improvising does not mean jazz. Improvising just means creating your own music at the moment, using a mode, put on a drone, find a drone, find a friend, have them play a low D and just jam on one of the modes and just have fun. And that's improvising. And there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And I think we need to be more welcoming and encouraging to our students to and to ourselves to explore this joyful, curious side to ourselves and discover what it is to improvise and be creative. Well, being creative was what you were when you discovered Samuel Barron's mm-hmm. handout. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh. it went from inspiration mm-hmm. to fruition. Talk about that, because that's a little entrepreneurship, and we love that at Porter Flute Pod, too. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I, um, you know, I really felt like inspiration just grabbed me, and I think... I I think that there is something to, you know, I don't know, when it happens, it happens, things come together, you're hit with something, and you have to listen to yourself and listen to the gift that you're being given. Um, It was a process. I mean, it didn't happen quickly. And in fact, I've spent the this past weekend working on more edits for the book and working with the publisher, you mentioned Colleen and Tom. And, you know, it's, I've never written a book before. I'm a terrible writer. I've had people have to, you know, I've asked for help about, you know, um, making things clear. I want things to be clear in my book. Um, and I believe it's a solid, I'm something I'm super proud of. Um, but yeah, the, the process has been this wonderful beginning of inspiration, uh, you know, with this beautiful exercise that led me to something new in myself. To yeah, creating a book that's a book that's going to be published, which is again, that's a new whole new whole new thing for me. Um, and 
you know, I think it's important that to just be open. I like the open door idea. Be open to the door that's waiting for you. And if there's something that's, you know, inspiration that's grabbing you, don't be afraid to run with it. So everybody just unlock that door <laughs> and walk into the modal sunshine, right? Love it. I love it. And, you know, you're reminding me about modes, The you know, when ancient Greeks created them, they were meant to, um, you know, each mode has its own color, has its own character, its own emotion that you're, you're invited to experience. So, for example, when you experience Locrian, there's no perfect fifth. So you're, you just feel out of sorts and it has this unstable feeling. But then when you hear Lydian with the raised fourth, it's this positive, hopeful feeling. And so I think that part of what um, I have learned or been reminded of in this experience in writing this book and these exercises is how the modes can tap into these emotions and how we can play this music that may really speak about certain emotions for us in a way that's it's so explicit. And so it's it's very it's very enjoyable to play something that has a title, you know, the first modal noodle is called floating. And to me, this Lydian mode with the raised fourth has this floating feeling. And I then I'm adding movement to it. And I'm I and I think that's another important thing that I mentioned throughout the book too is we are very rigid in how we play often. And if we can encourage in all the music that we do to invite movement into our playing, um, I think it helps with body awareness. I think it helps us to enjoy playing more. It helps to avoid injury. So many of us play with pain. The, the idea of discovery also in movement in the body and how we can awaken again our connection to our body through joyful practicing and joyful warming up. Well, it's, wonderful to get plugged into your joy because it's palpable we feel it we get excited when you're excited we get excited so thank you for bringing us not just another Tafanel Gobert and that was going to be my summation is that you you're giving us something that's new that isn't reinvented and repurposed I think that you know the Sam Barron exercise it's it's valuable. And I think. Talk as, to that. Are, yeah. Did you include that or. Yes, that's, that is the uh, part three modal patterns is the original Sam Barron exercise, however, extended up. So okay. I had the, the, the additional part of the, uh, the top of the scale, so to speak. Um, and, you know, we need to do our Tafanel and Gobert like exercises. We need to put the time in for me. I feel that the Sam Barron scale pattern with its simplicity and, you know, it's a short gesture. I feel that's more, that's, that serves me better. I feel, I feel that I get lost. I've gotten lost sometimes with these long technical patterns like Tafanel and Gobert, which are wonderful. And I, again, I've spent hours playing them. Still, I feel that I'm able to discover the idea of discovery. The Sam Barron gives me space to do that. Um, so, you know, what I've done with this book is I've taken, again, I didn't study with him. I found the set of flute fair. It spoke to me. I took it and ran with it because I felt it had value. I felt it had, I felt it was so, so meaningful for me. And when I was sharing it with my students and I started sharing it with colleagues and teachers, mentors of mine, Everybody was like, you know, this is this exercise does help. It provides this space for thinking about all the things that we may want to think about in our flute playing. So, um, you know, I don't I don't know if this book is for everybody. I think I hope that everybody can find something in the book. Um, I do feel that it's provided my own journey as a flutist uh, with a lot of new ways to explore some of the things that I've always been exploring. And if that serves someone, I'm so happy to have created this book. Well, the angel of Samuel Barron is smiling down and having gotten a bachelor's degree with this saint, <laughs> he, I loved getting a bachelor's degree with Sam. He would play chess 
uh, on paper with people all over the world and say, I'll be right back. We'll start in a moment. I have to go mail my chess move. That was the space. He would painstakingly handwrite cadenzas out for me. There was space there. He would make me play slow movements of Kulau duets, sight reading, and I would mess up so badly. And he'd sit there and tell me about rhythm. There was space there. There was space in his life. There was just... It was beautiful for you. There was a... Yeah. It was a... He was a kind of a chill guy. (laughs) That's really interesting that this exercise, this idea of space within this exercise, that resonates with you as his student. Yeah. His space. (laughs) He didn't need to rush exercising or warming up uh and he thought a lot he was a thinker a big thinker to the point where he played chess wow. internationally that it was quite a great moment to study with him at Juilliard um and thank you for doing the the dirty work of publishing if there's one word that's synonymous with publishing it's errata mm. You know, you're always going to have revisions. Don't worry. I have errata lists on my website to make it easier because people say, wait, Porter, that's a wrong note. I said, of course, it's a wrong note. There's an editing department. There's an art department. There's me. There's hopefully I have help. But between four of us and seven editions, you can't get it right. There's just, it's awful. No, I appreciate you saying that. It's, this will be a around 140 pages and Uh it's a lot of music to go through and you know I've been fortunate to work with a wonderful person that I met here at uh, Eastman School of Music named Will Pyle and he um, just magician yeah every time every time I go through and I'm looking for mistakes I don't find them and so you know but it's gonna it can happen right and so you know you do the best you can and um but I really appreciate you saying that because it's it's really easy to you know just worry and worry and worry that you're even like some of our most beloved books McQuarr the daily exercises right has several little typos in that we have to circle and remind ourselves and you know it can happen it can happen there is one mistake in the upper octave in Tafanel Gobert. I think it's in number four. <laughs> it can happen. Yeah, I know. It, it happens. So I appreciate you being here to talk about this wonderful new book um, that you're still in process with. It, but it's is it out? Can we get it right now? Oh, thank you for asking. Actually, um, it will be published in January. So can you name the year because our podcast is just timeless. Yes, January 2024, published by the beautiful and wonderful people of Conway Publications. Great. I am going to be traveling this year, um, also visiting, presenting different workshops at different flute fairs and different um, universities. Um, I'm very excited to share this book with many more people, and I, I... I'm excited to hear from any listeners to, to your podcast if anyone has used the book or had experiences with the book. And um, I would love to hear about your time with the book. I'd love to hear about it. We have to wait 90 days for this book. I'm so glad I got to preview it with you. Um, and thank you again for writing it. This is just fantastic to, to be um, introduced and reintroduced and reintroduced to modes. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. You're absolutely wonderful. Amanda Blakey, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm so excited to talk to you today about what else you have going on besides the Detroit Symphony. So do you mind if we work backwards, actually? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to start with why an orchestral musician would find love in Rubank. (laughs) Why you would still do scales and give them to your students. I mean, I I give my students scales, but I give them the James Galway scales up to high E, back down, do it three and four times in a row. Sometimes that's not possible. So Amanda, you're here because number one, I love your playing. I respect you highly. But then you have this lovely... You have this educational mind that that I can relate to. Mm-hmm. So why did you do your books and your your duets? Yeah. So the Rubank was a fun project that came out of the, the pandemic and everything being shut down. And I actually was mildly pregnant when I started the project, mildly being like probably three, four months pregnant at the time. And you know, when everything shuts down and you're like, what do I do with myself? I just, I had students, I was teaching virtually and one or two of them were, you know, working out of the Rubank method, the advanced, you know, volume one. And I thought, well, we can't play these duets in person. What a shame. Why don't I record them? And then like maybe do a little digging and just see a little bit about each composer. I will do the first flute part. Then I'll do the second flute part so they can play both parts. And then we'll do it again faster. So there's like a moderate tempo and then there's like an up to tempo tempo. So really, it just came out of a necessity of me wanting the students to be able to play along with me because they couldn't be with me in person. And then that made me want to just keep going. And I just kept recording and I would set up a camera in the studio. And, you know, it took some work and doing iMovie and and just some editing and all that. But it was a good little mini project for me to have when really it's just such a sudden sudden decrease in having anything to practice going from full throttle with the DSO to having nothing. And I thought, well, this will kind of give me something so that I'm not completely neglecting the flute, but it's giving me some inspiration that I feel like will help my students too. So I ended up recording the whole, you know, all the duets found in volume one, and uh, I would love to do volume two. In fact, some of the people who have bought it have asked me if I will do volume two, but it's just a matter of finding the time to do it at this point. But it was certainly the perfect project. And I'll also say I was planning on recording an album in 2020, and that kind of just went out the window with the whole everyone distancing and staying home. So this was kind of like, okay, what else can I do that's helpful for my students? So honestly, that's kind of where it came out of and wanting them to play along with, you know, a professional that's not a peer in their school band. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> what a great what a great observation that they get to hear a good sound while they play along. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you doing both parts. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd appreciate you doing book two, please. Okay. (laughs) Noted. I will make sure I get on that too. (laughs) So you've developed your own five daily exercises. Yes. Yes. So the five daily exercises really evolved out of what I felt I needed to touch on every day in addition to long tones and in addition to scales so that I was truly like at peak, perfect playing, ready to do anything on the flute in every rehearsal and every concert. So, um, you know, I found that harmonics always helped me set up my embouchure really well. Um, of course the jumping harmonics make it a little bit more challenging and that I've, I've just been doing those daily for, you know, three to five minutes for, I mean, since I was probably in eighth grade, cause my, my eighth grade teacher was kind of doing that. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. So I just started doing it kind of like that. And then kind of almost like evolving it slightly, but it's not like it's super complicated, but there is like a descending one where you do the top four down. And it just, that was always harder for me as for many of us ascending easier. Cause you kind of give more air, more support, but descending can sometimes have those hitches where the air gets less and you don't necessarily want less air. Um, so then it was also working on making sure that the descending ones were smooth and there was still air being blown through and all that. So the harmonics are first, because to me, that's like, a go-to. If I only have five minutes to warm up, I'll do that. (laughs) And I feel like I'm set up so well for everything else. 
Um, let's see the drone being so important with just ear training aside from just the tuner. Cause I'm really big on the tuner, but it's also, of course, especially in any ensemble, knowing where you are, if you're the root of the chord, the third of the chord, the fifth, understanding where maybe center lies and how far down or up you want to be from that. So I will always do my long tones with a tuner to kind of set my embouchure muscle memory in the right spot and to feel like my ears is staying consistent and not gradually getting like used to a sharper high register. <laughs> Cause I do feel like over time, if one doesn't check in, you can just start, start accepting sharp <laughs> up there or flat down there. So I will just always do my long tones with a tuner, but then the drone work being so important to just listen and to hear those difference tones and then really feel like you can tune those as well. Super helpful, especially when playing second flute and you're just adjusting on a dime, like in a millisecond, you got to, you know, adjust to whoever you're playing with, whether it's second clarinet or first clarinet or obviously principal flute. So for me, like intonation is so essential as a second player. Wow. I wonder though, do you do these exercises as you're warming up on stage in the orchestra? Do you sometimes do that? It depends. So I sometimes do, though I will use like the tuning CD or the Dr. Beat drones, which I love since there's so many octaves in the Dr. Beat. Um, if I if it's kind of hard to do that on stage, I'll either try to do it before or believe it or not, I will do it later just to make sure it's done and yeah. that my ear is like really there. And I remember last year we did a Bruckner Symphony and 98% of the flute two part was in unison. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to do tons of drone work to make sure I feel like I'm playing everything 441 in tune. And then if I need to tweak, I can, but it's my job to make sure it's like prepared and tune, of course, all parts, but especially if I'm in unison, 98% of the time, it was a big drone week for sure. Wow. And do you do your scales sitting there yes. in the chair? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'll get there as early as I can. It's a little tricky with daycare drop off and all that. Um, but yes, I will get as much as I can, whether it be Robert Langevin extended scales, you know, it's uh Tafnel Gobert one, four, five, you know, 10, any and all of those Reichert. I love the Reichert so much, you know, all of those books, sometimes I'll go through phases and I'll focus on one for a while and then I'll go to another one or I'll mix and match, you know, but the main thing is I feel like my fingers have had some a good workout. And again, even if that means I didn't get my full warm-up before, because sometimes it is fatiguing to have, especially for the double rehearsal, if I do like an hour and a half before rehearsal, I'm just going to be, my chops are going to be like done. <laughs> so I will make sure, even if it's like 10 p.m., I'll be like doing some of that stuff for maintenance, making sure it's all there, ready to go. Um, you'll see in the in the five daily exercises, there's a pinky exercise. Again, so helpful for playing low register pinky stuff, second flute all the time. Um, and actually what I wanted to do was put in the original Francis Blaisdell exercise, but it's not my exercise and I give it out to people. But the main thing is I did a variation on it. So harmonically, it's the same. The one in my book's a little bit easier just so that it's not, I'm not like taking, you know, of course I would have credited her for it anyway, but I don't know if her family has the rights to it. So I didn't want to, you know, overstep or anything, but the main thing being that it's the same exercise for the hands. And then I can teach people, you know, the other way to do it, um, which is her rhythm in that sense. And then there's double tonguing, triple tonguing, backwards, forwards, you know, so those things coupled with long tones, the way Robert taught me and the way I, I'll adjust it with the attack being gentle, the attack being, you know, really strong, the dynamics with and without vibrato at fortissimo, pianissimo, you know, maybe the tone color and the vibrato being different in different dynamics, like the release being open and full versus a tapered release. At least I feel like in breathing wise, doing the repeat all in one breath. I feel like with the long tones, I've maximized everything I could possibly do in the long tones. So there I've already been as efficient as possible with my time. Then I do, you know, as much of the five daily exercises, especially because I got to get that tonguing in there. And then of course scales. So whether it be 
extended scales, thirds, you know, or all those other lovely books, Tefton Gobert, Reichert, you know, if I do all of that, I feel like I feel great. I can play any dynamic, any attack. And, you know, especially as I feel like a second, and it's not as if principal flute doesn't have these requirements too, but as a second, you have to be, you can't be louder than the other person. If they come in so gently, then I have to be just as gentle and just as ready timing wise. So I felt that there were certain things I wanted to cover every single day. And that's kind of why those came about as long as they were also coupled with long tones and lots of scale work with articulations. So yeah, that's a little so bit much, about that. So many good things, so much to share with everyone. It's great. I think uh, tones, long tones are important. In technique, scales, intervals, and noodles are what yeah. we talk about. And the noodles are patterns. Mm-hmm. And the patterns, sometimes we play so many notes that to think about a pattern would be a little bit better than thinking about all those notes. Mm-hmm. It's a developmental wheel where we get to go all around and take care of all the things we have to take care of before we launch into music. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I was going to the Philadelphia Orchestra since I was eight, and Eugene Ormandy was still the conductor. Yeah. Uh, if that tells you about my age. And, <laughs> and so that meant it was Murray Panitz playing the flute. Wow. And Murray Panitz, I came in one day and I heard, like these, go up a half step, go back to the note, right? Yeah. And now go down. Right? Yeah. So it could be. It could be, what is that solo? Uh, oh, Ravel piece in the form of a habanera. It could mm-hmm. have been, I don't know. It could have been warming up for the Bear Concerto third movement. I don't know what yeah. he was playing, but I came home and I still, to this day, after 40 plus years of playing the flute, <laughs> I still have the Marie Panitz exercise I heard when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Love that. In, Love in the that. Academy of Music listening to the Philadelphia Orchestra. So fair warning, Amanda Blakey, whatever you're warming up on, there's some Someone's aspiring, listening. <laughs> there's some aspiring <laughs> flutist saying, I want to do that. I love that. That's so sweet that you still, you know, have that vivid memory and yet you do it. That's amazing. Well, you reminded me of it. <laughs> I okay. also do something chromatic every day. There's something about doing chromatic stuff that makes me feel like technique is so set. So I did put it in the triple tonguing exercise on purpose to kind of make sure it was guaranteed, but I love the Reichert one. I love the Tefanel Gobert one and I have some Francis Blaisdell ones. I just do, you know, from my, my college teacher. So, uh, yeah, I love a chromatic exercise every day. (laughs) Right. Funny joke. Eric Olson is the principal oboist of Brevard Music Center Orchestra and the professor at Florida State. And he will turn to me in the summer and start playing the most romantic, slow Reichert. <laughs> and I'll say, wait, that's a Reichert. <laughs> Isn't that supposed to be fast? Yeah. <laughs> the, the first one or which one? I have no idea. It'd it just be, it'll just be turn, like, turn to me and just take his oboe and like he's his oboe and uh, that's such an oboe player thing to do. <laughs> All the lyrical slow melodies, yeah. you know, we're like going fast and like Peter and the Wolf. tell my listeners about the time I heard you and it was through a wall 
And I have to tell you that we usually have the thought that, oh, okay, it's through a wall. Um, that person doesn't sound as good once you hear them, you know, in, in the room. And this flute player through the wall, which was you, was getting better and better and playing like Bach and playing all these pieces. Like <laughs> I thought, okay, number one, that's not my student. <laughs> and number two, it's not me. So who is this? So I sent, <laughs> I sent someone, I think, out on a mission to find out who you were. And <laughs> do you remember somehow you, I made, I, it was almost like a summons. <laughs> and that's how I met you. And you said, oh, I'm playing where were you playing? Detroit Opera. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't know you. You're a goddess on the flute. I have to <laughs> know you because no one plays like that. You're amazingly. That was so sweet. Well, yeah. Well, I'm kind of critical. <laughs> <laughs> so my my students will know that when I say Amanda Blakey is the consummate flutist, uh, I have to just, you know, I'm, they will turn to you. They Aww. have turned to you. And my producers adore you. Aww. So first of all, that's how that's I met sweet. you. Do you remember that? I do remember it, okay. though. We actually met before that. Oh, wait. That's right. <laughs> I know. And then, but you had to remind me when you came and told me that. May, yeah, at Aria, right? Right. I didn't actually, I wasn't assigned to have lessons with you, but I did end up getting a lesson with you that you you allowed me to like set up a lesson so that was so nice that was back in 2004 what did we do Iber concerto oh wow <laughs> yeah it's the first movement okay or maybe it was the third movement gosh I'm trying to remember now <laughs> it might have been the first movement because I think I ended up performing the the third movement for um graduate auditions but I was working on that for a concerto competition so it was immensely I helpful it. And you worked on vibrato with me. I still oh, remember. good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Judy Kane. <laughs> and then uh, Samuel Barron would write on the Eber Bach and Jazz. Mm. And that is what yeah. I, I teach that Eber. Uh, that's, what I, that's how I teach Eber. Yeah. I love that. Well, at the Detroit Symphony, now you, you transitioned and auditioned out of Detroit Opera. Yeah. Uh, you were in Sarasota Opera too, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now in the DSO, uh, you have a, a bit of a different life. You have some education and outreach efforts. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. Yeah. So they have a great program that you can sign up for almost like contractually so that you are guaranteed basically um, almost like a salary, like a $3,000 amount of work. And it allows you to go into schools, hospitals, retirement homes, um, teen centers, you name it. It's kind of like a great way to get out in the community and share your talent. And sometimes, you know, some of my favorite memories were honestly going into Detroit public schools and there's a, a, a music teacher affiliated with the DSO who's kind of leading certain curriculum. And then at a certain point, they bring in maybe two or three musicians to join them. And then you get to talk about your instrument and do demos. And some of these kids have never seen a flute or a clarinet or a violin. And it just is so rewarding to feel like, wow, they they finally not only got to see one and hear it for the first time, and you just feel like maybe this meant something to them, just like it certainly did when we were young, you know? Um, so those, those have been amazing. Same with hospitals when you're playing for the kids in the hospitals. Um, some of them are veteran homes, retirement homes. Um, some of them are literally more like quintet concerts and some of them are more just like fun demos. So, I mean, you can get quite a variety um, but it's truly been very rewarding to just have some of that in addition to playing, you know, the great big orchestral rep, but allows you to do some other great chamber music and literally just feel like you're you're in the community going into different schools and, and venues and all that. So I have always loved that. Um, and also, of course, that the CYE program. Um, like actually this next weekend in one week, I'll be doing two or three coachings on Saturday to coach all the different flutists in the ensembles for CYE. So Can you clarify CYE. 
Yes, the civic youth ensembles. So there are, are going to be a number of different bands. Um, there's the different, probably a, a string orchestra. I know there's certainly the the highest one is the DSYO, the Detroit Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, so, you know, sometimes Sharon, Hannah, and I will each get one or Jeff. And, you know, sometimes we try to make sure we each get a chance. But if someone's busy, then maybe we, some of us get more. Um but at this point, I am what they call ad hoc. So I will sign up as I'm able to. Whereas, you know, before I had kids, I was in the contractual one where I was just doing everything. It's a little bit harder now that I have young kiddos. But, you know, I'm still able to do as much as I want when it's available and emailed to me. So that's great because it's a great feeling to do some of that extra work that's oh. totally different. For sure, for the underrepresented community, especially. Mm, yeah, yeah. And the Detroit Harmony Project, where they're literally giving kids instruments. I just, I love it. It makes me so happy. <laughs> so let me tell you that Atlanta Symphony took a direct uh, playbook from the Detroit Symphony. And that was back in the 90s. We have all been at this groundbreaking work for underrepresentation in music for decades. So thank yeah. you. Oh yeah. I'm I'm so glad to have the opportunities to do it. You know, it's it's really a privilege and um I'm I'm just so glad that we can try to get those instruments out there and inspire people to play instruments and it's so fun. It's fun to go with a colleague and just play for a little four and five year olds. <laughs> I know. I know. It's fun to have the the petting zoo for the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Always fun. laughs> Love it. Well, one of our producers, Jordan Smith, says uh, he recalls a story that he read that you heard the Deviant number no. seven concerto mm -hmm. performed by Robert Langevin, your teacher, and you were so yeah. inspired that you wanted to play the same one. Just played with the Rochester Symphony in Michigan. Yes. That same Deviant concerto. Yes. Speak to yes. that. Was that fun? Oh, it was so fun. It was just, what, two nights ago? Um, <laughs> it's hard to believe. But yeah, so I remember hearing Robert play this at Orford. I mean, I studied with him in Canada for nine summers, so it's hard to remember which summer it was. <laughs> but um, and I'm sure someone may have played it in all of his master classes in those nine years as well. But when he played it with the, with the orchestra there at Orford, I was just like, wow, this is so beautiful and charming and elegant. And there's those beautiful turns and it's just very lovely flute writing. And after that, I bought the music and I've had it in my, you know, library for a long time. So the serendipitous part about this whole thing is that about a year ago, I was playing it for fun just to give myself some repertoire, inspiration, something very fluty that's just not all of the second flute parts, you know what I mean? To give myself something more soloistic and and certainly just, you know, giving me more repertoire to have, you know, just for fun and being inspired. So I was working on it and really thinking, gosh, I would love to play this with an orchestra. And then Hannah Hamill was just performing the Reineke Concerto with the DSO in the communities on our community concerts. And that also lit that like, oh, it's been a few years since I've played a concerto. Gosh, I would love that. It would be so fun. It's such a beautiful concerto. And um, I kid you not, within a month, uh, the Rochester Symphony contacted me and said, would you play a concerto with us next fall? And I was like, wow, <laughs> it's manifesting. <laughs> and, um, you know, what's funny is that I thought, well, I've done Ebert, I've done all three Mozarts. I don't know about Nielsen with this group, you know, I'm going to just pick something, you know, I love CPE Bach D minor. I love the Deviant. I gave them America Dante. I gave them about five or six options. They narrowed it down to America Dante and Devian. And I said, Devian, because it's already on my stand and let's, you know, let's fulfill this dream of mine to play it just like I was inspired by Robert. So um, it's been truly a pleasure to like prepare this and to finally play it with an orchestra. So it was such, such fun. And I got to tell the audience that the other night as I described a little bit about the Vienne and, and the concerto and why I picked that concerto. Great story. <laughs> Yay, Robert. <laughs> Let's talk about the little kiddos. You have Lily, 
Yes. Lily Claire. Lily Claire. And William. And William is your youngest. Yes. Almost she's almost three. And he's almost 18 months. So So still. what's up with oh. your husband naming a coffee shop, Lily and Willie? <laughs> yeah. So aside from real estate, my husband has now uh, started a coffee company. And he has literally in the room right below where I am, I'm actually in his office. We made a roasting room and there's a, you know, a vent and gas line and you name it. It is a full on roasting room. So sometimes I'm practicing down there and he's roasting down there. We're both doing our thing <laughs> late at night. <laughs> so that. he, you know, sometimes real estate's slow in the winter and he was just looking for something to inspire him. And he's got a very creative side. I mean, his degree was in graphic design and and he also did a certificate in advertising and photography. So there's a very artistic side of my husband and he's always loved coffee and he worked for a coffee company and had done tons of packaging for them. But the only thing he hadn't done was roast. So this kind of got him into, okay, well, what can I do in this time that I have that I would love to be, you know, helping people, but it's slow in December, November. And so he started taking courses and reading books and got a whirly pop and was uh, literally hand turning uh, some coffee beans out there before he actually bought a full on professional roaster. So anyhow, long story short is we eventually threw out a bunch of names. I think Lily and Willie Coffee Co. was the first one that we came up with. And I was sold. I said, yes. And he had to think about it. But, you know, it's like, do you want to buy coffee from Gross Point Coffee Company or Lily and Willie's Coffee Company? Especially when you know it's like a family business. So in the end, we thought, how fun would it be to, you know, build this up and then maybe someday pass it along to them as well. So they are the cute little animated coffee beans on our on our logo and label. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. So we have our little coffee company and now we, we have a website. So we're slowly building and growing, but it's been, it's been really fun because I try to help him a little bit with social media, but he's, he's really in on the roasting part and that's his thing. So. Isn't it great because you could be doing something, you have a career and then you discover something fun. Yeah. For me, for me I love making videos, short film, videographer, if you will. So my husband will say, I have to go make candles. And, you know, it's a family run business. Yeah. Our name on it. You know, he goes to work and he goes, what are you going to do? And I go, he goes, he turns around and says, wait, I know you're going to go have fun. And that (laughs) means go work like, sorry, no offense, not practice, but go make (laughs) my videos or, you know, go have fun Mm -hmm. with my other creative side. So Mm -hmm. that's so great. Your husband does that. Yeah. I love it. And I feel like it does fulfill a more creative side. I mean, real estate is great and all, but it's not necessarily creative. And when you have light roast, medium roast, dark roast, and different beans and different origins, you can really, I mean, he's literally hand tweaking the whole process because it's what you consider small batch roast craft coffee. Whereas like the larger you get, the more it's just like push a button and let it do its thing. But um, it's very artistic, really, in a way. So I'm I'm really enjoying his little business, which is really like our little family business. And it's it's kind of fun to be part of it in a small way, but it's really his thing. Oh, Amanda, we have so much in common in that very thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Coffee and candles. Coffee and candles. <laughs> well, thank you for being my guest on Porter Flute Pod today. It's been delightful and you've inspired me to do your scales. Where can we find them, these five exercises? They are on my website, amandablakey.com. And spell your last name for us. (laughs) B-L-A-I-K-I-E. So amandablakey.com. And then where do we go? We just click on those exercises. You will see at the very top, there's a little bubble for Rubank duets. And there's a bubble for five daily exercises. And you can click on those. And uh, yes, that's where you can get them. And you can just use PayPal. Um, But those are there. and, And actually... This is kind of fun little bit of news for you, but Robert and I are coming out with a book on his whole pedagogy. So it's in the works. It's getting close to, it's probably next year. Next year it'll be ready. But is that a preview announcement on Porter Flute Pod? 
<laughs> Maybe. I'm so excited. Yes. Let our listeners celebrate jump up and down right now. Woo-hoo. So stay tuned for the Langevin method, but it's coming. Oh, man, it's coming. Good. So I've been, I'm almost like, you know, mine is a, is a, is a small thing that I feel helps me on a daily basis. But you know, now it's, it's for the last couple of years, it's been all about helping him with his book. So um, it's coming soon. So I'm very excited for him and his legacy. We are all excited. Bravo <laughs> to you. Thanks for being Thank with you. me. Thanks for having me, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you to Amanda Blakey and Laura Lentz for joining me in Porter Flute Pod. You can find Laura Lentz, who lives in Rochester, New York, uh, at Laura Lentz, that's L-E-N-T-Z, flute.com. And you can find Amanda Blakey performing in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra at Symphony Hall in Detroit. You can find her virtual duets and five daily exercises at Amanda Blakey, that's B-L-A-I-K-I-E.com. I hope that we've given you some new life in your warm-up. Put it on the calendar and make sure you check in with Amanda and Laura. Thanks for being in Porterflute Pod. I'm so grateful for you.